Well, it brings me pleasure this morning to introduce to you someone that I've got to know over the last uh, couple years where I serve on the examinations committee in our presbytery here and Gulf Coast Presbytery. Sean also served many years on there and just came off, but we get to work with a fine young man as a leader of that uh, group, and that's Chad Watkins, who's a, t- a teaching elder and, and preacher down at uh, Westminster Presbyterian. We're glad to have him and his wife, Melissa, and family here uh, this morning, and I'll let him introduce the rest of his children, and check, why don't you come forward? Thank you, Rick, and thank you to uh, the session here at First Presbyterian, as well as to my friend and colleague in ministry, Joe Grider. It is a uh, privilege to be able to open God's Word to you today. You know, uh, being a local pastor at another PCA church in town, I don't get to worship at the other churches uh, because I'm always employed on, on a Sunday, uh, as you can imagine. And so it's a real treat. Um, this is actually a huge help for me uh, because right now I'm a, a solo pastor. Our associate pastor left to take another call uh, back in the summer, and we have a morning and an evening service, so I've been preaching uh, a lot, uh, morning and evening, and this was actually a huge help uh, for me uh, to be able to, to come up here and uh, preach a sermon that, I'm going to admit it, I've preached this sermon before, but not here. So, um, and I'm sure Joe's doing the same thing down in uh, Fort Walton Beach uh, this morning. Uh, why have I chosen to preach from First Peter chapter 1? It's always a difficult thing uh, to try to determine what you should preach when you're visiting somewhere. It's not a part of your regular preaching pattern. We're going through Exodus uh, in the morning services and Revelation in the evening services at Westminster. And so why First Peter? Well, uh, this is a passage about suffering. Uh, and you may be thinking, thanks, Pastor, this is the last time we'll invite you to come back. It's a little bit uh, depressing, uh, but... I don't know where you are this morning and what 2023 was like for you, uh, but uh, for me uh, and for our church in large measure, it was, uh, it was a mixed year. Uh, there was some grief, uh, and, but also uh, some wonderful encouragements. Uh, and so I think I need this text just as much as anyone else does. So if for anything, I'm preaching it for my sake, uh, and Lord willing, it will be a blessing uh, to you as well. Because God's word is always effective. And so let's turn our attention to it. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to look at verses. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 6 through 9. Uh, but I'll read uh, from verse 1 down through uh, verse 9 just to set the context for us. Before we read God's word, let's ask for his help uh, together. Heavenly Father, we look to you now uh, because apart from your blessing, the ministry of the word Our eyes will remain blinded to it, our ears will stay uh, stopped, and our hearts will be cold to it. And so we pray that you would send your spirit now, uh, fill us with joy as we receive the word. Uh, Help us to hear with the ears of faith, and we pray that you would cause your word to bear much fruit in our hearts and lives today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, and we'll read from verses 1 to verse 9. This is God's holy word. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, 
in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him. You love him. Though you do not now see him. You believe in him. And rejoice. With joy that is inexpressible. And filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith. The salvation. Of your souls. Amen. And we thank God for this reading of his holy word. Well, if you uh, have your Bibles open, keep them open. If you didn't open a Bible, open it, uh, because that's just the way I do it. Uh, We work our way through a passage of scripture together. So have your Bibles to hand as we work through this this morning. Uh, Suffering. It's a word that uh, makes us uncomfortable. Uh, It means to experience or to undergo or be subjected to something, often something that is unpleasant by nature. Sometimes we think about suffering uh, uh, from a heat wave. Uh, Nobody likes that, but we experience that quite often down here along the Gulf Coast, don't we? We may suffer loss of some sort, losses that in the relative scheme of things, are not all that significant. Our favorite uh, sports team loses a game. We suffer loss with them. Other losses, however, uh, are much more significant. Uh, perhaps the stock market crashes and you lose uh, 50% of your retirement savings. That hurts a lot more, doesn't it? Uh, some losses are much more permanent. We suffer the loss of a dear loved one. Uh, That one cannot be recovered. No one enjoys suffering. Uh, I don't think any of you have ever woken up one morning and thought, I just can't wait to experience some grievous trial today because I know the Lord is going to do good through it. We we may believe and know and, and embrace the fact that God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose But no one wakes up thinking, I can't wait to endure suffering today. At least no sane person does that. Well, there was a man who knew great suffering in church history. His name was Charles Simeon. He was the pastor of Trinity Church in Cambridge for over 50 
years. Now, there's no way someone lasts that long in one particular church without enduring some measure of opposition and suffering, enduring hardships, and endure it he did right from the very beginning. You see, uh, the church didn't want Simeon as their pastor. Uh, This is why it's good to be Presbyterian and not Anglican, uh, because in the Anglican church, they just appoint a pastor over you. And so that's what the bishop did. He appointed the pastor. You get to choose your pastors and elders. Uh, So be thankful for that. Okay. Uh, But uh, the church, he was appointed there. Well, they didn't want him. Uh, And you can imagine how difficult that would be for this young man coming in as a new pastor. Uh, Well, how did they express their displeasure of him? Well, there was an afternoon service in that church that was supposed to be his to preach. uh, But they did not allow him to preach it. The congregation wouldn't allow him. They had uh, their assistant pastor, who they really wanted. Uh, They let him preach the service for the next next five years. He wasn't allowed to preach it. Then when Mr. Hammond, the assistant, left, they had another man come and preach the service for another seven years. So a total of 12 years, this man is rejected by his own church. The Sunday morning service met with a different kind of opposition. In those days, uh, there were pew holders uh, and you would uh, pay a certain rental fee, and that would be your pew for the year. Now, some of you probably think you have your pew, and I'm sure we sat in somebody's pew, and they're really not happy with us. But if you've not paid the rental fee for it, then it's not really yours. But in those days, that's the way it was. Uh, and so what would happen is the pew holders would lock the pews. No one could sit there. Uh, Well, Simeon rented chairs from his own expense, and the people who did want to come could sit in the aisles in the chairs. Well, he shows up one day, and guess what's happened? Uh, The uh, equivalent to the deacons have taken the chairs and thrown them out in the churchyard. Uh, Nobody could sit there. Uh, It comes another time, and the same thing has happened, and the church doors are locked. Simeon hires a locksmith to open the door, but comes back the next Sunday, finds that they're locked again. And so eventually he realizes, they don't want me here. Nevertheless, he persevered. The trials didn't end, of course, after 12 years of ministry. They continued. He pastored, like I said, for 50 years in that congregation. Uh, But suffering was a part of his ministry. But it's the perspective on suffering that's important for us to understand. It's his perspective on suffering that we need to get our minds around. Listen to what he shared in a letter with a friend by the name of Joseph Gurney. Uh, Gurney had asked him about suffering for the Lord. And here's what Simeon said many years later. Bear in mind all the things that he's gone through which are a snippet of his life. My dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering. When I am getting through the hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his sufferings and triumphed over death. Let us follow him Patiently, we shall soon be partakers of his victory. We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. 
I wonder if that's a sentence that has ever passed your lips, uh, a thought that has ever entered into your mind. It's quite countercultural, isn't it? Uh, normally, we go in the complete opposite direction. I need to avoid suffering at all costs. Trials and the suffering that results from them are unwelcome in our lives. And yet, I think Simeon's perspective is one that is shared in our text by the Apostle Peter himself. He would uh, most certainly endorse Simeon's perspective. Uh, This section of Peter's letter provides us with a lens through which we can understand our various trials and afflictions uh, so that we can understand them rightly with a biblical perspective. Uh, Peter teaches us first about the nature of trials, the nature of trials. He'll tell us that they're temporary, they're somewhat necessary, and they're also varied. And then the purpose of our trials They refine us, they prove the authenticity of our faith, and they result in praise. So first, the nature of trials, and then secondly, the purpose of trials. Uh, Look there at your Bibles again, and you'll see verse uh, 3 to 12. You don't see this in your English Bible, uh, but in verses 3 to 12, it's all one long sentence in the Greek. So if you, uh, those of you who brought your uh, Greek New Testament with you, you would see that. No punctuation there. One long sentence in the Greek. In other words, there's one big idea that's tying all of these verses together. And kids, just for, for you, the Apostle Peter and Paul, by the way, love to use run-on sentences. So when your teachers have a problem with that, you just tell them, it's in the Bible. It's all over the place. Run on long sentences with extra clauses. See if that works for you. If it doesn't, I apologize in advance. But uh, this whole section is connected. Peter will move seamlessly from a focus on worship in verses 3 to 5 to a perspective on trials in verses 6 to 9. He begins by saying, look at there at verse 6, in this you Rejoice. What is the this? The this is everything he's mentioned in verses 3 to 5. That they've been born again to a living hope. They've received an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven. They are being guarded, protected, hemmed in through faith. For a salvation that will be revealed when Christ comes again in glory. All of those things are already true. And in those truths, these believers take great joy. Now, it's interesting, I think, the word Peter uses for rejoice is a different word than the Apostle Paul regularly uses. Uh, The Greek word that Peter employs here gives the sense of rejoicing with an ecstatic joy. Almost like uh, someone who is leaping in the air for joy that they have experienced. A few years ago when the Olympics uh, were on, I think they're coming up again, right? So, But a few years ago, I remember watching the Olympics and um, 
the athlete, let's say the, the American athlete, uh, was coming near the finish line, and they were about to win uh, whatever event it was, and the broadcaster would then go to a split screen and show the parents of that athlete in the stands, on the edge of their seat, ready to celebrate when their child won. And then as soon as they would cross the finish line, uh, it, would, uh, it would show the parents jump up out of their seats with such great delight at the victory of their child's I wonder Christian do you have any of that kind of joy when you think about the new resurrection life that is yours through union with Jesus Christ or is it yeah great I'm, I'm a Christian yay he saved me Sometimes, is it not true that we can become just a little bit glazed over in our eyes when we think about what Christ has done for us? We get a little too used to the gospel message and it no longer thrills our heart as it once did. Jesus had a word to the church in Ephesus about that in Revelation 2. They had lost their first love. Dear Christian, has that happened to you? Is your heart not as warm and filled with joy as it once was? Maybe the hour you first believed. Friends, we have the great blessing of life in Jesus Christ. And that is a joy that is inexpressible, Peter says. It's far greater than winning a gold, silver, or bronze Metal. Now, why emphasize this? Because if we do not clearly understand the joy we have in Christ, then we will be steamrolled when the trials come our way. And so we must get this right first, lest we get flattened by afflictions. Now, Peter tells us three things about the nature of the trials uh, they are temporary. They are necessary, and they are varied. First, they're temporary. Look at verse 6 again in your text. In this you rejoice, though now for, he says, a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So whatever trials we face, and we will face them, uh, that's, that's to be guaranteed. One of the things uh, that is true for the Christian is that those trials are by nature temporary, but our hope is eternal. This is the perspective we need so that we are not overwhelmed when trials come, so that we're not consumed by them. Uh, Paul shared something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. He says this, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of Glory. Beloved, there are trials in this life. We don't need to try to pretend that they're not. You know there are. You have experienced. If you've been a Christian for longer than five seconds, you've experienced some measure of affliction. Sometimes they're grievous trials. There are trials that will test your faith. There are trials that will cause your head to spin. And some of them that will lead your heart to break. There may be some of you who are in those very trials 
as I speak. Maybe you've been in them a long time. But these trials, Peter says, are temporary. We endure them for a little while. Now, some of them may last until our dying day. Perhaps it's a debilitating uh, ailment, physical ailment that you've been living with uh, for a long time. Nevertheless, it's temporary because the Christian, do we not have our heart and mind and affections set on the eternal weight of glory? We must set our hope there. We must think much about the glories of heaven. For there will be no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain anymore. Nothing to cause grief and sorrow. We must have our minds fixed upon the glories of heaven. If we are to endure the trials for a little while. We must know that they are temporary or we will buckle underneath them. The psalmist reminds us that weeping may tarry for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy comes in the morning. Trials are temporary. Secondly, though, Peter tells us that they may be necessary. Look at the text again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. This might be the most a difficult part of the nature of trials for us to come to grips with. It certainly flies in the face of what the world declares to us today. It's absolutely anathema to the uh, prosperity, health, and wealth false gospel that is peddled by charlatans uh, parading to be Christians today. Why would trials be necessary? Has, has Peter lost his marbles? Uh, we, we naturally think, don't we? If there's anything I can do without, surely it's afflictions. I don't need them. I'm much better off without them. But Peter is speaking by experience here. He himself has known great trials and afflictions as a follower of Christ. He has known imprisonment. He's known the whip and threats and Things like these. Go back and read the early chapters of the book of Acts. And you'll see that to be the case. He witnessed the necessity. Of Jesus's. Afflictions. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples. That got them really confused. And and actually led Peter to say something very foolish. And Mark chapter 8 verse 31. The son of man. Must. Suffer. That's necessary. The son of man. Must. Suffer many things. Friends, the sufferings of Jesus Christ through his life and in his death on the cross were necessary for your salvation. Apart from his sufferings, there is no forgiveness of sins. Peter remembered Jesus' words because it was after Jesus said that that Peter took him aside and said, Jesus, (laughs) you need to be corrected here. You remember what Jesus said to him? Get behind me, my friend. Is that what he said? He said, get behind me, Satan. 
You imagine being Peter and hearing that from Jesus? I was only trying to help Satan. And so when Peter says that trials may be necessary, we cannot dismiss him. He understands of what he speaks. You see, when we understand that trials are instruments in the Redeemer's hands to shape and fashion us and to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ, then we will see how they are necessary. But we'll come back to that in just a couple of minutes. For now, we can simply state that trials are necessary to wean us off of our love of this world, of our dependence upon ourselves. And trials are necessary to make Christ sweet to our souls. Then the third element of trials is that they are varied in nature. Look at the text again. You have been grieved by, he says, various trials. Verse 6, the word various literally means of many colors. And the word trial itself is used in a number of different ways in the New Testament. It can mean a temptation. It can speak of a test of a person's character. It can indicate enduring emotional trauma. It may speak of undergoing physical pain. Peter is saying that the trials that the scattered church, it's who he's writing to, that the scattered church is experiencing, indeed the trials that you and I may face, can be multifaceted in nature. There will be trials of the body, trials of our minds, trials that afflict our very souls. He's not only speaking of physical persecution, that those in, uh, in other parts of the world experience. We may think, oh, I've never known suffering. Only those Christians in Nigeria, that, that they know what suffering's like, but we, we don't really know what suffering is like. That's not what Peter is saying. Sure, there is a certain kind of affliction that ought to cause our hearts to ache for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. Nevertheless, There are certain kinds of afflictions that we endure here as well. Sometimes it's in the form of verbal abuse or slander because you're a Christian. Some of you may experience that at work. It's a difficult place to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Sometimes there's the trial of physical weakness when your body just doesn't work anymore. Some of you know what that's like more than others do. There's the trial of a rebellious child, perhaps an adult child who's no longer walking with the Lord as they once were. Some of you know what that's like. There's the trial of a marriage that may be falling apart. Trial of an ongoing battle with some particular besetting sin. There's the trial of a disagreement with a Christian brother or sister, and your relationship is now frayed and no longer what it once was. There are all kinds of trials, Peter is saying. Each one of them, however, ordered and designed with a purpose. None of them are by 
accident. They're designed by God himself to teach us something. Well, what is the purpose then of trials? We've seen the nature. What about the purpose? Well, what's the, uh, the natural question that comes up when afflictions come our way? Why? Why? That's the gag reflex, isn't it? Why me? Why this? Why now? Why, Lord? Why? Peter gives three reasons. You see them there in the text. First, trials refine us. Secondly, they prove our faith authentic. And then third, they result in praise. First, then they refine us. Look at verse 7 with me. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Trials refine us. Peter uses this illustration of refining golds and likens it to the refining power of trials that the Lord himself uses in our lives. If you were to go and uh, pull a chunk of uh, gold out of the earth and then try to put it on eBay to sell it, you probably wouldn't get a whole lot of money for it. That's because it's got lots of impurities in it. It's uh, a metal mixed with other kinds of uh, metals and minerals and so on, and, and those things have to be removed. And so there's a process, of course, some of you may know a whole lot about this, and others may not know anything about it. But uh, in order to increase the value of the gold, it needs to be pure. What do you do? You have to heat it up. And it has to get really hot, around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, for the gold to start melting. And then the impurities will rise up to the top, and the, the heaviness of the gold will sink down into the bottom, and then you'll skim off the impurities so that what you're left with is something that is precious, something that is more pure. Friends, the Lord uses trials in the lives of his loved ones in similar ways. He heats us up through the furnace of affliction, through the trials that he himself uses, don't get offended, but to purge the impurities out of your life and mine. And there's a lot of them. You and I are still full of sin. It's true. There's a lot of selfishness, a lot of sin that still clings to us. And here's the great thing about your Savior. He's so committed to your growth and grace. He's so very committed to you reflecting his own glorious image that he has promised to burn out the impurities in your heart in your mind, in your will, so that you would shine like a star in heaven. And he does it. He, he burns away the scum and the filth that remains. And sometimes he will use trials to do so. Once we have this kind of perspective, once we understand the why behind the trials, we can face them without despair. 
We could even possibly say with Simeon, we must not mind a little suffering. For if we know the purpose behind it, we can see what the Lord is doing. He's making us more like Jesus. There's a wonderful little booklet really in my library uh, called The Loveliness of Christ. Uh, It's a collection of sayings from the letters of uh, Samuel Rutherford. Uh, Some of you may know who he was. He was a a Scottish uh, Puritan pastor, a delegate to the Westminster Assembly. Uh, And he spent many years actually in exile, imprisoned. And he would write letters to his congregation who he could not be with. Uh, And there are a number of them that are just uh, really solid gold. Uh, Let me read one of those quotes uh, to you. He helps put trials in perspective. He says, it is the Lord's kindness that he will take the scum off us in the fire. Who knows how needful winnowing is to us and what dross we must want ere we enter into the kingdom of God. So narrow is the entry to heaven that our knots, our bunches and lumps of pride and self-love and idol love and world love must be hammered off us that we may throng in stooping low and creeping through that narrow and thorny entry. Oh, what I owe to the file, to the hammer, to the furnace of my Lord Jesus. I wonder if you have that perspective on trials when they come, that the Lord Jesus is a master craftsman who is taking the hammer of his word and taking the file and he's knocking off the big lumps of sin that remain in your life and he's filing away the rough edges of your character. That doesn't always feel good, does it? Nevertheless, he's purposeful in it that you might sparkle and shine for the glory of Of Jesus Christ. He burns off the impurities. So that you might more faithfully resemble him. That's what the Lord's doing. The question for us I think. Is how will we deal with the pain. And the sorrow of trials that come our way. You may be tempted. This happens. To to good Christians. Trials come and they self-medicate with food, with drink, with entertainment to try to drown their sorrows and their pains. Some people will isolate themselves from others because it's just too difficult to try to bear any pain. Or will you say, Jesus, I know, I know that you're meaning this for my good. This hurts, but I know that you have a plan and a purpose. I know that you are enough for me. I know that your grace is sufficient to strengthen me through this affliction. I believe. Help my unbelief. Give me grace for today's trial. That's all I ask. And then tomorrow, give me grace for tomorrow's trial. Beloved, do you have that kind of perspective? On the afflictions that come your way. These various trials are also used to prove that our faith is authentic. Look at the text again. He talks about the tested. So you have to put it to the test. The tested genuineness 
of your faith. If someone were to come to you and say that they have a a long lost painting by uh, the Dutch artist Rembrandt. Well, what would happen? A team of experts would come and they would apply all of their uh, tools and their various tests to see, is this the real deal? They would look at the canvas and examine it. Is it authentic to the era? Uh, They would look at the types of paint that were used and the colors and the shades. They would look for signature marks of Rembrandt's work. All to prove whether or not this was a genuine work of the Dutch artist. The Lord himself uses various trials or tests to prove if our faith is indeed genuine. How many of us know people who have professed to be followers of Christ? But in the end, they prove to not possess faith. In Christ. It's one thing to profess faith. It's another thing to possess faith. Many will say to me. Jesus says. Lord, Lord. Did we not do all of these wonderful things in your name? And what will Jesus say? Depart from me. Those are frightening words. And so trials are used by the Lord himself. To demonstrate that the faith of his loved ones is genuine and not counterfeit. Genuine faith is explained in verse 8. Look at it. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas, the doubting disciple? Thomas was not there uh, the first time the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples. And I won't believe until I put my fingers in the wound. Jesus shows up a week later. Says, Here you go, Thomas. Thomas wouldn't believe until he saw with his own eyes. And then Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That is the scattered church Peter's writing to. Those who have not seen. And yet, believe, that is you and and me. We've not seen Jesus, but do you love him? You do not now see him, but do you believe in him? That is genuine faith. To love him who first loved you. To believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That his work has secured your salvation. And then finally, the purpose Peter mentions for trials is that they might result, look at the text, in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is a question here among commentators of whose praise is in view here. Is it praise for Jesus Christ or praise for the believers themselves. Now our natural instinct is probably to think, well, of course it's praise for Jesus because it's only and always praise for Jesus. But it's interesting the way Peter uses the phrase here and how he connects it to the return of Jesus actually may indicate that what's in view here is the praise of the believers who have endured and who have fought the good fights and who have pressed on and inherited 
the kingdom. For when Christ returns, they will be crowned with glory and honor. Indeed, all believers will receive the unfading crown of glory when Christ comes again. Jesus himself will publicly recognize his saints. He will vindicate them in the sight of all. He will declare, well done, good and faithful servant. But of course we know, don't we, that any praise that comes our way is only because of the grace of God at work in us. And so what will we do? We'll take the crowns he gives us and lay them at his feet and bow down before him. And he will receive all blessing and honor and glory and power and strength. Indeed, as Peter says, on that day we will rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Our hearts will be so full of love and they will burst with delight at the sight of our blessed Savior. And we will obtain, finally, what we long for. The outcome of your faith, he says. The salvation of your soul. Well, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, we must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. For it is by these afflictions that Jesus himself is transforming us into his own glorious image and making us fit for heaven. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you praise for you have spoken in your holy word. It is true and right and glorious. And we pray that you would help us to receive it in faith. Lord, we know that you use trials uh, and you purpose them uh, so that we might be conformed into the image of Christ. That you're melting away the scum and the filth of our sin. You're refining our faith that we might um, learn to let go of our love for this world and cling only to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us, help us to endure Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, in whose name we pray together. Amen.